0: All right, hey! Thank you so much, worship team, and uh, I'm grateful to be here with you guys. We doing all right this morning? Super! (laughs) Good to see you. Good to see you. No matter how you're doing this morning, it's good to see you guys. Um, Hey, you have found us in uh, really the fourth chapter of what is essentially a seven part book, or the fourth, uh, you know, series, or whatever. Part four or seven. So if you missed the first three. Now, we're going to try to catch you up briefly, but man, I'm sorry that you missed them, and we'd be glad to have you go back and listen to uh, the podcast to kind of get caught up to speed on where we're at. But we're in the, the middle, kind of the heart of a series called God for the Grown Up, and the subtitle gives away what we're trying to communicate here that a childlike faith doesn't require a child like God. And that some of us who've grown up uh, from little on up uh, have early conceptions of God, but sometimes don't grow in those conceptions of God as we physically get older. And some people walk from the faith because they're older in age, but not necessarily older in their faith or their maturity in how they see God. And that can be a real That can be a real problem there, okay? So this series, God for the Grown-Up, is meant to address some of these issues. Early on, I kind of used the metaphor in this series that I'd like this to be like a walk into the woods. Now, that might scare you a little bit if you're not a woodsy person, but what I mean by that is the the opening piece we wanted to kind of walk in and clear the brush of a picture of who God is, and that was kind of the first and second part of the series. We're kind of clearing the brush on misconceptions about God. By week three, I wanted to kind of get into a clearing and see clearly who is God. When we talk about God, who is he? And here's what I said last week, as this was last week, that God is love near and far. That God is love near and far. Using God's words to describe himself, that God is love near and far. That God is near to you and near to me in in, in epitomizing or embodying love. But he's also far in that he has perspective to be able to love us in ways that sometimes don't always feel loving. Not unlike a parent who sometimes says no to their children even though it's the most loving thing to do. The kid might be like, I don't know if that feels loving. But it is loving because they're far... They're distant. They're removed from their five-year-old child. They see what their kid doesn't. God is love near and far. Imminent, transcendent, big theological words, but defining God, God is love near and far. Now here's the great thing about that is it's a good definition. It's easy. It's simple. Six words, all one syllable. You can remember that. The problem with that is that it often doesn't work outside of the greenhouse of the church, Like That is a fair and fairly safe definition of God to use here, where few of us are going to argue with that. But the question becomes, when I take that definition of God as love and plant him outside in the world where the storms of life come and the floodwaters rise, how can a definition like that withstand the realities of life? And here is the question I left you with last week, which is a question I want to address this morning in part four of the seven-part series. If God is love near and far, why is there so much suffering and evil in the world? How can I, and how can you, if you believe in this same God, how can I with intellectual integrity say to you and try to convince you God is love near and far when there is so much suffering and evil in the world? How can you say that? How can you, Christian, hold on to a God who defines himself this way as a God of love when we see all of these things happening? It's a great question. If you haven't addressed it yet, you're going to have to address it at some point. A fellow by the name of Jerry Sitzer wrote a book called A Grace Disguised. If you've never read it and you have personally dealt with suffering or evil at a personal level, let me encourage you to read Jerry Sitzer's A Grace Disguise. There's a lot of great books I can recommend to you on this issue, but Sitzer is very um, good because it's a very personal account of a gentleman who went through extreme grief. Here's what happened with Sitzer. He has a wife named Linda, four children. They were young children, ages two to I think eight at the time. They were homeschooling their children, and his wife said, let's take our children uh, to a, an Indian powwow okay, uh, to learn about the Native American traditions. That's what they were learning about at the time. So they go to this powwow in Idaho, and Jerry's mom travels in the van with them. You have the picture, we got Jerry, his wife, four kids, and Jerry's mom in the van, go to the powwow, have a powwow, and here's where we pick up the story in his book, A Grace Disguised. By 8.15 p.m., however, the children had had enough, so we returned to our van, loaded and buckled up, and left for home. By then it was dark, Ten minutes into our trip home, I noticed an oncoming car on a lonely stretch of highway driving extremely fast. I slowed down at a curve, but the other car did not. It jumped its lane and smashed head-on into our minivan. I learned later that the alleged driver was Native American, drunk, driving 85 miles an hour. He was accompanied by his pregnant wife, also drunk, who was killed in the accident. I remember those first moments after the accident as if everything was happening in slow motion. They are frozen into my memory with a terrible vividness. After recovering my breath, I turned around to survey the damage, and the scene was chaotic. I remember the look of terror on the faces of my children and the feeling of horror that swept over me when I saw the unconscious and broken bodies of Linda, his wife, my four-year-old daughter Diana Jane, and my mother. I remember getting Catherine, then eight, David, seven, and John, two, out of the van through my door, the only one that would open. I remember taking pulses doing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, trying to save the dying and calm the living. I remember the feeling of panic that struck my soul as I watched Linda, my mother, Linda excuse me I watched Linda, my mother and Diana Jane all die before my eyes. And I remember the pandemonium that followed: people gawking, lights flashing, emergency vehicles, a helicopter whirring overhead, cars lining up medical experts doing what they could do to help, and I remember the realization sweeping over me that I would soon plunge into a darkness from which I might never again emerge as a sane, normal, believing man. God is love, near and far. How can you say that? How can you say that? to someone like Jerry Sitzer, who in a moment lost three generations. David Hume was so stuck on this problem that he epitomized and he put into words the problem that most people feel when they have the problem of evil and suffering come before them. And he put it this way, he said, if God is willing to eliminate evil or suffering, but not able, then he's impotent. Picture someone who just can't Picture, carry the weight, the problem of suffering and evil. If he's willing to do this but not able, then he's impotent. But if God is able but not willing, then he's malevolent. It's a big word we don't use all the time, picture Maleficent. The nature of Maleficent is evil, wickedness. Picture a God who's able to do this but he's not willing. Therefore, what else can he be but wicked in his character? And then he asks the question, which is meant to seal the deal, that God is both willing and able, whence then is evil? You tell me your God is willing? He's got a heart of love? You tell me he's able? He's omnipotent? Then please, would someone explain to me where evil has come from? And because you can't, I'm going to push back and say, therefore God doesn't exist. Particularly in a moment on a lonely stretch of highway in Idaho, when a Native American... Driving 85 miles an hour, runs head-on into Jerry, sits there, destroys his family, and kills his own wife. How do you get through that? If you never address this or work this through, this is why I work on this series, God for the Grown-Up, okay? that this faith that we hold to is not just a Sunday school faith. This thing better work, even in the most difficult moments of life. Uh, let me give a little caution at the beginning as well. For some of you you may or may not ever get to the point in life where you experience a deep suffering and pain. I hope that something like what I just read from Sitzer never happens to you. I mean, boy, that that, I hope goes without saying. But I want us to be careful as we deal with this and we interact with evil and suffering and the difficulties of this that we don't commandeer someone else's suffering and make it our reason for walking from faith. Let me say that again. And I want you to commandeer someone else's suffering and make it your own and say, that's why I'm walking from faith. Because for many people, the path of pain is not actually a path away from God, but to him. And so if you commandeer someone else's suffering in their life and say, this is why I don't believe in a God, just you better be careful on that one. Because for many people, including Jerry Sitzer himself, this wasn't a path away from God, but a deep path to him. I just want to be careful on that and caution you. That, okay, so... With that being said, that being said, we have two questions we need to address this morning. The first question is this: Does the presence of evil and suffering suggest an absence of God? This is what David Hume is trying to get you to believe. This is what critics of the faith, not named David Hume, who are your friends or your peers, are trying to get you to believe, or who believe themselves, that the presence of suffering and evil suggests an absence of God. The second question is this: Can I worship a God who claims to be love and allows evil and suffering? Can I worship this God? Some of us might say, well, that doesn't mean that there's an absence of God. But the question then becomes, can I, can I worship a God? Can I actually trust a God who allows evil and suffering? Those are two different questions. All right, two different questions. So to the first question, and that is this. Does the presence of evil and suffering suggest an absence of God? I need to give credit to uh, a whole pile of people who shaped my thinking on this and who... Um, who have some great things to say, you know, John Stott, J.I. Packer, Andy Stanley, our own Daryl Whitmer has helped me a lot think through this um, missionary in Maine, who we're going to see in July, by the way. Um, you know, uh, J.B. Phillips, the work of Probe Ministries. There's just a lot of people who've uh, shaped my thinking on this. So let me begin this way and say, Christianity has never claimed, listen to this carefully, Christianity has never claimed that God is a God who will eliminate evil and suffering. This has never, ever, 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 ever been the claim of Christianity. Christianity has never said, Christianity only works if evil and suffering are gone. Never been the claim of Christianity, ever. In fact, Christianity would never have made it out of the first century if that was the claim. Like Christians don't believe that. They've never historically believed that. The reason people believe in Christ is not because bad things go away, but because there could be a potential answer for bad things. So l- l- let me look at it this way with you. that Imagine if you were able to observe me as being a father around the dinner table, and it was dessert time. And dessert time came, and I, as a father, I decided to let my children have not just one piece of cake, not just two pieces of cake, not just three pieces of cake, not four, but we had a big cake. I let them each have five pieces of cake. Now, number one, that wouldn't happen. Number two, imagine they all got sick, which is not hard to imagine. And they all suffered as a result of my decision to allow them to do that. Would you question that I exist? Or would you question that I'm good? See, the presence of suffering and evil is not a logical, a logical argument to say, therefore, God doesn't exist. It is fair to say, is God just But it isn't fair to say, does he exist? And so let me put it this way. The presence of evil and suffering in the world calls into question the justice of God, not the presence of God. That's a very important distinction to make. When you see suffering and evil, the question isn't, man, does God around? The question is, is this a good God or not? When you see me acting in that way as a father, you're not thinking, boy, I don't know if he was around. No, he was around. But how is it that he would allow that? that makes sense? This is an emotional argument, not a logical argument. It just isn't a logical argument to say if suffering and evil exist, God doesn't exist. That's just not logical. It's emotional. I kind of want that sometimes. I want that, but it's not logical, okay? So the second question then comes into play. Can I worship a God who would allow suffering and evil in this world and this is the more pressing issue this really is the issue of the morning can i trust this god can i worship him can i serve him to this let me say this if you if you want to walk to another faith another way of thinking through the world every faith is going to have to answer this question Like This isn't just a Christian issue, right? If you decide to become a Muslim, you're going to have to figure out how do I answer this in my Islamic tradition. If you want to become a Hindu, you're going to have to figure out how do I respond to this in my Hindu tradition. If you want to become a Christian scientist, you're going to have to figure out how do I handle suffering and evil in whatever worldview that I have. This is not a uniquely Christian issue, Right? This is, this is across the board. How does the system in which I view the world handle this? Now, some of you, and I know people like this, and you might as well. In fact, I could name some names. I'm not going to. There are some people who have walked from faith, and they've walked completely away from all gods, and they've become atheists because they can't get around this issue. At least they're saying they're atheists. They can't get around this issue, and therefore they're saying, the only way for me to handle injustice in the world is to believe that God doesn't exist. So let's think about that for a minute. If I get rid of God, if I get rid of God, what am I left with? I'm left with natural selection, right? I'm left with nature. Is that correct? Like if I get rid of God, I'm just left with nature. And if I'm left with nature, let me ask you this. Does the lion care about what he eats? Is he compassionate upon the poor little gazelle that wanders across his path? Does he, oh, am I eating a little? Is this the third-born son of the gazelle? Like I should maybe think about how I'm going to eat this thing. There's no compassion in nature, is there? There's no compassion in nature. It's just nature. They're not, just the way it is. And this is why natural disasters bother us. Because the tsunami doesn't stop and think about all the people that it'll sweep away. It doesn't stop and think, this is a bad time. This is a bad time to erupt a volcano underground. Like, I shouldn't do that or have an earth... No, this is a bad time. Nature doesn't think. There's no compassionate piece to that. If I get rid of God, all that I'm left with is natural selection. And all that I'm left with in terms of justice, then, is my justice and your justice. That's all that I'm left with. I have no other justice to appeal to. So if I get rid of God... I am left with a world in which I have no larger sense of justice, but it's me against you. That's really going to be the way that it is. And my justice may be different than your justice, but who cares? There's just no other way to do it. And so if I pull away from God and move into an atheistic world, I'm going to have to answer that question and deal with that reality that I'm actually not getting an answer to justice I'm creating mass confusion. Now I have no definition of what justice even is at all. All that I'm left with is natural selection in the biological world. And it is not a very compassionate, just-filled world. It just isn't. All right, so with that being said, let me go back to Jerry Sitzer, and here's what he said in The Grace Disguised. He said, if there's no God, human emotion collapses into a terrible relativism, and it makes no difference how we respond to loss. It becomes entirely subjective, like individual tastes in ice cream. He said, I cried at the funeral because I lost three people whom I loved. But why? Why not snicker at their burial and scoff at the whole experience? We grieve the dissolution of a marriage, but again, why? Why not celebrate the freedom from obligation and urge married people to take such commitments less seriously? We mourn a man's tragic accident and severe disability, but why not laugh at his condition instead? We empathize with a couple who has a Down syndrome baby, but why not urge them to institutionalize the baby and try again? And this is the world that exists when you eliminate God and lean into your own justice and my own justice. We don't actually get a resolution to justice. We get mass chaos is what we get. And so he concludes this way. He says, if there were no God, if there was no God, There appears to be no ultimate reason why we should feel one way or the other since emotions like grief or happiness have no grounding in a greater objective reality outside of the self. With that being said, I believe there is an answer to how can a God who claims he is love exist in the middle of a world that Jerry Sitzer experienced, that you've experienced, with suffering and evil in this world. The answer is an answer that we don't always like especially in our country, in, in more developed countries. It's a difficult answer, and I'll also say this, it isn't an answer that I'm going to give to someone like Jerry Sitzer on day one. This is an answer I will give to someone who is able to step away from suffering and evil and have perspective. This is not some uh, an answer in which I'm going to go into a hospital room with someone grieving and try to comfort them with what I'm about to tell you. Okay, this is big picture perspective on how I see God functioning as a God of love in a world of suffering and evil. Not the first thing I'm going to tell you if you're going through a loss. Fair with that? All right. So with that being said, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the Gospel of Luke is in the New Testament. It's the uh, third book in the New Testament, Luke chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in the pew near you. That's our gift to you, by the way, if you don't own one. But Luke chapter 18, Jesus has something to say about justice in the world, which is difficult to hear and hard for us to get our minds around. It's actually harder for us to get our emotions around than our minds around, to be honest. So check it out in Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. We're going to go through verse um, 8 here this morning, right? So Jesus is talking to his disciples, and here's what he says in verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. Let's pause it there for a minute and think about what's happening. This is a made-up story. Jesus is trying to give a a metaphor for how in the world will justice be served in this world. So look how he describes the judge. Verse 2. In a certain town there was a judge who was a jerk. Does it say that in your translation? Because that's essentially what it's saying. Look at that. He neither feared God nor cared about men. This This is someone who is a pain to deal with. He doesn't He's not revering God and making his decisions on the basis of what God would want him to do. He doesn't care about that at all. You talk about pompous, arrogant, prideful. Doesn't want to listen to anybody else. No authority above him. He is the law. This is the picture of that. You don't fear God, and not only do you not fear God, I don't even care about you. How, would that, how great would that be for a, to, to go before a judge, in which you know that's the reputation of that judge? I don't care. I don't care about you at all. I don't care. This is the reputation that, God, that Jesus immediately lays out for this judge. Here's a judge who's terrible. He might be good at executing the law, but he's a terrible person. He doesn't care about you, doesn't care about God. And then look what happens with the widow, verse 3. There was a widow in that town who couldn't go to her husband anymore, who couldn't go to apparently anybody else, who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. Now, we don't know what the adversary is, but think about how bad this must have been for this widow. Okay, Think about this, how bad this must have been for the widow. Where she would wake up in the morning and think, you know, the best plan for me is to take my problem back to the judge who doesn't care about me. Think about that. You know, the best way I can handle my pain, my problem, my struggle, the suffering that I'm dealing with, my best plan is to go to the judge who is a jerk, who yesterday said, nope, not going to help you. The day before that said, not going to help you. And everybody knows he's going to say, not going to help you. But my best plan still, go to that judge. She had no other plan. All right, check that out. That's important to see in verse 3. All right, and now look at verse 4. For some time he refused, but finally... He said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. Jesus is clear. He is not doing this because he likes her or because he thinks it's even the best thing to do. This is purely selfish. And she kept coming, she kept coming, and verse 4, for some time he refused. But finally, he said, even though I don't fear God or care about men, she is annoying. If you'll just go away, I'll give you what you want. Jesus tells this story so that he can draw the conclusion in verse 6, 7, and 8. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly, and I'd love to stop it there. But it doesn't end there. He continues, However, When the Son of Man comes, will he find widows like this? Will he find faith on the earth? Jesus' answer to the problem of evil and suffering in the world is to say, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. I'd prefer him to say mercy and grace abound. But he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That God will not hesitate to bring justice and by implication, judgment. Jesus' messages in the book of Matthew and in Luke as well describe a God who will bring judgment. The question is, will he find faith when he returns. See, by sending Jesus into the world, he creates an answer that we may not prefer to hear. Jesus tells us here, in the future, justice will come and suffering and evil will be dealt with. The problem is, I want mercy for me. I'm okay with judgment for you. But Jesus is saying, you're going to have to receive Justice and judgment on both sides. Like, this is part of the answer that Jesus is going to bring judgment. And the question, the lingering question is Am I going to find any persistent widows? Who, despite continuing to be turned down, will continue to come. Who, despite not having an answer in the moment for suffering and evil, will continue to knock on my door. Who don't get impatient, waiting for an answer, but recognize, I've got nowhere else to go. Where else am I going to go? Atheism? Hinduism? Islam? Buddhism? Christian Scientology? Where am I going to go? I've got no other judge to go to with the problem of suffering and evil And so I will persistently come before this judge. And when the Son of Man comes, he will bring justice. But will there be anybody there when he comes? Will he find faith on the earth? Now here's the beauty. Here's the beauty of the gospel. Here's the beauty of the the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God didn't just sit in an ivory tower as the king as servants were mucking around in the mud and say, I'm going to save you one day. You just wait for it. It's going to come. Trust me, it'll come. Here's the beauty of the gospel. God sent his only son from that castle out into the world to muck around in the mud with you and me. Because I'm telling you this, If anybody had a reason to leave God because of injustice, it was Jesus who was falsely accused. Not only was he just accused, he was tortured. He was murdered in the most gruesome way that you can be murdered. And yet, Jesus held on to a faith in his Father, even when his Father declined him in prayer And Jesus said, if if you are willing, please take this cup from me. I don't want to go to the cross. Like, God, I don't want to go through the suffering that I'm about to go through. I know what it's going to be like. I don't want to do it. And God says, no, you need to walk this road. And Jesus didn't walk because where else is he going to go? What's the other plan? Atheism? Which I'm left with what? Buddhism? Let's, Let's go through it. If there's anyone who had a reason to walk, Jesus did, and yet he didn't, that God sent his son Jesus kind of from that castle to muck around in the mud with us, that in his suffering and pain, he could relate to us as a great high priest and he could lovingly say to us, I am with you. Here's how John Stott put it. Stott said this, in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? He said, I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I've had to look away. And in imagination, I've turned instead to the lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hand and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding with thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain, and he entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. Let me take you back to David Hume. Here's what he said at the beginning. If God is willing but not able, then he's impotent. If he's able but not willing, then he's malevolent. And I'm going to finish it differently. Since God is both willing and able, he joined us in our suffering and will bring justice. Since God is both willing and able, he joined us in our world to suffer and to experience and to feel what we do. And he will bring justice. The question of Luke 18 is, will he find faith on the earth? when that justice comes. Can God be a God of love in a world where evil and suffering continue? If he's not, where else am I going to go? Which is why I go to the God who sent his son to enter this world, to suffer with us, who will ultimately bring justice. Now, if you have a child or grandchild, or you're uh, in junior high, senior high, even in elementary age, you will enter into a world or you will be introduced into a world in which the um, scientific energies of our world are attempting essentially to um, push out the need for a supernatural God. If you have not experienced it yet, you will continue to experience a growing sense that there isn't a need for a supernatural God in a scientific world that we can pretty much answer most of the questions that we ask through our own wisdom, through science, and nature. Next week, I want to talk about that question with you. Can a supernatural God exist in a scientific world? God for the Grown-Up, part five of seven. Let's pray together. Our good God and Heavenly Father, I thank you for the time to be together this morning to consider again this difficult struggle of a God of love existing in a world where evil and suffering are experienced. I pray for those this morning who are dealing with suffering in a more personal way right now. The answer for them is not just wait and trust and God will someday come to you, but to experience and to believe again and to feel again the nearness of your love through the cross of Jesus Christ, to feel the nearness of God through the Spirit, the understanding of God who has been through suffering and difficulty and pain and rejection and loneliness and struggle, to feel that nearness in their heart and soul. And I pray that that would be the case for those this morning who are dealing with suffering and difficulty in a very personal way for those who are able to step back and see from afar and get a perspective on this, from a little more intellectual perspective, I pray that you would help us to lock in this view from the Scriptures again that God will bring justice and judgment at a time that he so determines. I pray that the question will remain with us, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find people who believe? again, who keep coming to him for justice, even when the requests aren't answered immediately or in the way in which they would prefer. The difficult topic, but our God and Father, we trust you. And we also acknowledge that we have nowhere else to turn. And so in those moments, we lean in and ask for your help and ask for your Spirit, to remind us of what is true and what is good. We thank you that you are a good God who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to walk in suffering with us and to promise us a hope in which justice and judgment will come. We ask for your courage this week as we step into that which we have to step into, that we can be able to say that no matter what comes down the pike for us, it is well with us because we trust in our God and our Father.